Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is The Economist Asks, and I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app. This week, we ask geneticist Adam Rutherford about the mistakes we make when we examine our origins. We've effectively been getting it wrong. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that genetics has really revealed that we've been getting it wrong. The unexpected complexity of our genetic material. There are pretty much no genes for anything. Nothing exists in isolation. And the race of racing. Sprinters are a better group of people, if you want to categorize them, than black people. But I don't think anyone would ever say sprinters are a race. Adam Rutherford is a geneticist and broadcaster who is also the author of A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Stories in Our Genes, a new book that seeks to explain the true story of our DNA and challenge the misconceptions he says surround it. Adam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You open the book by saying that we all carry this this epic poem in ourselves. What do you mean by that? We've used a lot of analogies over the years to describe what DNA is, and people talk about it being a blueprint or as an instruction manual. And I don't think any of the descriptions have been not necessarily useful. There are elements of blueprint in DNA in our genomes, and there are elements of instruction manual, but I think people are very prescriptive about their analogies. And I was I spent a lot of time thinking about what modern genetics and modern genomics has taught us. And obviously, it's a, it's a poetic analogy. But an epic saga is what felt best because it's an in, our genomes are meandering, huge compilations of every organism that is in our entire evolution and every ancestor, well, not quite every ancestor, as we might discuss later, a sprawling tale that results in an absolutely unique version of DNA, which has never existed and will never exist again. And uh, other analogies being not very useful. There's lots of things that have come out along the way about genetics and genomics that that you you find either not very useful or downright unpalatable. And yeah. I think that the book does, does a lot to kind of unpick these, a lot of sort of received wisdom things. One, sure. one of the things you tackle directly is nature versus nurture. What's wrong with that as an idea? Yeah. A lot. Everything. Go on. <laughs> well, I, I suppose this is, this is kind of, I didn't want to do a debunking book. But along the way, I, as, as you say, I've, I've, I've attempted to explain or maybe remove some of the cultural memes that people talk about when they talk about genetics. We, within genetics, within science, have tried to stop saying nature versus nurture because it's not, these are not two things in conflict with each other. They're two things that work in concert with each other. So now, when we say nature, we mean DNA. And when we say nurture, we mean the environment, which includes absolutely everything which is not DNA, from the intracellular milieu to whether your father read to you and was around and what school you went to, and the position of you as an embryo in your mother's womb, all of that is environment, is nurture. 
And it's those two things working together that, that make us what we are. All of the side roads and the subplots in the epic poem. Everything, the, the reading of it, how it's passed down from generation to generation. It's not just the words, it's how you perform it. Now, I know you, you specifically say you're not trying to do a point-by-point uh, point debunking, but I think some of the most interesting stuff that comes out here is, is what has been debunked as we've understood genomics uh, and, and genetics a little bit better. If there is one central idea in the book, it is that we are culturally programmed to misunderstand genetics. <laughs> more than any other science that I'm aware of, there is more reason for us to misunderstand genetics, which genetics is effectively the study of families, right? And we've, we've called it genetics for 100 years, but we've been studying families and inheritance for as long as they've been humans, which is, you know, 100 or 200,000 years. All through that time, the way we've talked about how traits have passed on from father to son, from mother to child, you know, for, within families, we've effectively been getting it wrong. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that genetics has really revealed that we've been getting it wrong. By the time we get to the 1980s, we begin to enter the, the modern age where we're saying, well, this is a gene that causes this particular disease. And at this point, we're looking at a very small number of diseases that are passed down from generation to generation in particularly comprehensible ways. So they're like cystic fibrosis, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, Huntington's. And the reason we're looking at those ones is because they are the ones that we, I, we can see passed down through families. But it turned out, again, that these ones were the outliers. These were the simple diseases that they were discovered first and, like, and characterized first because they're passed down in this particular way. Every other trait that we're interested in, the complex ones, heart disease, um, mental health issues, schizophrenia, um, you know, physical characteristics, behavioral characteristics, are just ridiculously complicated. And we're only just beginning to understand what, how, how they are passed on from generation to generation, how they emerge. Um, through the interaction between nature and nurture. Well, a lot of that sounds like sort of happenstance about the history of, of, of what we've learned and so on, but you, you're asserting there is a sort of culturally ingrained, we, we are going to misunderstand this. What do you mean by that? Science is anti-common sense. This is one of the, one of the things I, I, I say in the book and also quite often. That when people talk about common sense arguments, and, and actually I feel that Science is the opposite of common sense because common sense is how we perceive the world. And we're terrible at perceiving objective reality. We're so easily deceived by what is in front of our eyes. And when it comes to the specifics of genetics, we make all sorts of assumptions and inferences about our own children and family relationships, which actual genetics, the science of genetics has shown are not true. So, you know, simple things like adopted babies. People see adopted babies and, and say, oh, they look like their father, right? When, when they're not biologically related to, to the father. Or we make all sorts of casual predictions about what physical characteristics or behavioral traits children will have because their parents have them. Genetics just doesn't, we, we now know, doesn't work like that. And there's, a, there's another assumption a lot of people make about sort of, you know, isolated populations and so on and, and keeping sort of pure lineages and, you know, ugly arguments that get into to, to pre preserving race and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that, that is something that genomics has, has shown more than anything, uh, the, the somewhat contentious area of understanding the genetics of race. And it's not uncontroversial to say this, but within science, almost every geneticist I know agrees that the way we talk about race in the vernacular has 
almost no alignment with what genetics has shown. That there are effectively no races in the way that we talk about them if you look at the genomics. Well, what you said was uh, you're unaware of any group that can be defined by their DNA in a scientifically satisfactory way. There you go. Science has spoken. Yeah, it has. But it's, it's a funny thing about being in, in, involved in a scientific community for the last 25 years, as I has, have been, when I can say something like that to... Uh, nods, you know, people agreeing with me. And then I've discovered in the last few years that you say that outside of the scientific community and people say, oh, come on. But it's obvious that whatever, crudely, people will say, well, black people are better at sports or they're better at sprinting. Or you say, well, there are Jewish diseases. And everyone has these prejudices to a greater or lesser extent. And they all turn out to be unsupportable by the science. Okay, we're sitting here and the Olympics is going on. There hasn't been a white man in the Olympics 100 metres final since Alan Wells in 1980. People then say, well, black men are are genetically, biologically predisposed to be good at at sprinting. And then some of them will say, ah, yes, and that's because black people have a higher proportion of fast twitch cells in in their muscles, and that predisposes them to be better sprinters. Well, the science says not really. What What it says is that sprinters have more fast twitch muscle cells in their legs, which is why they're good at sprinting. But the bigger problem with that whole statement and that whole idea is the idea of black people being some homogenous genetic group. Black means nothing in terms of genetics. And we've known this for a few years. There's more genetic diversity within Africa than there is in the entire rest of the world put together. So, you know, what does that mean for sport? It means that sprinters are a better group of people if you want to categorize them than black people. But I don't think anyone would ever, ever say sprinters are a race. Hmm. They just happen to have dark It's skin. just as inexact to say the race of sprinters. I think it would be more exact to say the race of sprinters or, conversely, the race of long-distance runners who have another genetic predisposition, which is to be able to process oxygen uh, more effectively than people like you and me. But is that limited to black people? Well, it occurs in the highlands of Ethiopia at a high frequency. It also occurs at a high frequency in Morocco. Now, the people of Morocco and the people of the highlands of Ethiopia are very genetically distinct, more distinct from each other than a Chinese man is from a Scot. So do we categorize them as as one race? Well, you could do if you wanted to, but then you'd have to take into account the people of the Himalayas. So the Sherpas, who also have mutations in their genes, which predispose them to being very good at processing oxygen at low levels. Now, they don't have a culture of long-distance running. But if they did. If they did, yeah. You definitely want to bet on those guys. Coming back to this question of how humans ended up being the way that they are, what have we learned then from what we can now see in such extraordinary detail in the genes? The whole field of paleoanthropology has basically been sort of rewritten in the last 10 years and is being completely rewritten uh, you know, on an almost weekly basis. The first thing is that we no longer have a very clear linear path from our ape-like ancestors like the Australopithecines to us now. What we have is many different uh, human species that were living at the same time. So in the Neanderthals, we've got another one called the Denisovans now from which we only have a bone and a a couple of teeth. Then we have the the, the hobbits of Flores, which we, in the last month have discovered another species of them on the same island. And so basically what it says is that um, the out-of-Africa hypothesis remains perfectly intact. That That is the correct working model for how humans populated the Earth. But it's not linear. It's not clean. It's an in, entirely messy situation where 
uh, as far as we can tell, we migrated out of Africa at an incredibly slow rate. I, I don't know, I imagined for years that some group of proto-humans packed their bags and got up and, and said, we're going that way because that's the promised land. That is not what happened. The migrations we're talking about are happening at like a couple of miles every thousand years, which is much less than moving house in London. So I, I think the language is is a little bit tricky for us because we talk about migrations and we talk about spreading over the world, but the timescale is absolutely enormous. But also it's the, uh, it's the degree to which these there were these, you know, you mentioned all of these other examples and so on. A, there, there, is, no, there is no missing link in the story you just laid out. Mm. Um, and B, the, they were not completely independent, you know, uh, competitors or, you know, uh, living out in different niches and so on. All, they were, we, we were all mixing. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that now comprehensively about Neanderthals and the Denisovans. So I can look at, at you, Jason, and say that you've probably got about 1.7 to 2.5% Neanderthal. I, I tend towards three. <laughs> yeah, do you? European. Yeah, and I'm the same. And what does that say? That says that Neanderthals were not a separate species from us. We carry their genomes. It means that at some point in our ancestry, uh, one of our Homo sapiens ancestors had sex with a Neanderthal, with a Homo neanderthalensis. And that makes them our ancestors, right? I mean, I, that seems to be obvious to me. I still have arguments with paleontologists who say, ah, oh, but they look different and they can't have been, you know, they must have been a different species. Well, this is, this is it. One of the other ideas that, that you kind of keep bringing up is getting away from genetic trees and thinking of it much more as genetic webs. Yeah. It's much more the sort of enmeshed nature of things rather than this became that, became that, became that. Absolutely. It was all that promiscuity that did it. Yeah, and I think that trees are a useful metaphor as long as they're useful. And when they're not useful, they really need to be abandoned and cut down. So that, that works in the ancient history with the Neanderthals and the Denisovans and stuff. But it also works in our recent histories because very simple math says that if you have two parents and four grandparents and eight grand, great-grandparents and so on, for every individual alive today, by the time you go back to the I don't know, 10th or 11th century, you've got 100 trillion people on Earth. Now, there haven't been 100 trillion people on Earth. And so what we know is that our family trees collapse in on each other very rapidly. And I don't just mean, you know, if you're inbred and come from a, an inbred community, but it probably means that, you know, you, you and me are probably fourth cousins, right? That's highly likely. I can look at you and say we're probably fourth or fifth cousins or something like that. And now what we know from genetics is that the last common ancestor of all Europeans, of every European, every white-skinned person on Earth, is about 500 years ago, right? So there was someone who lived in what is now central Germany from whom a branch on every single white person's family tree passes through at the same time. And that's kind of nuts. You know, that's, that's head-scratching. Seriously? And when I say that in lectures, people go, God, that's fascinating. But what about these people? And you go, yep, yeah. Yeah, they're included. Yeah. Oh, but what about what about the Ashkenazi Jews? And you go, yep, they're definitely in there. No, I, I completely believe you and still can't get my head around it. Exactly. Um, all of this, though, so far has been very sort of backward looking. Um, yeah. And it has to be said that in the, you know, in this age of lots of study of genetics and indeed the sort of uh, being able to get genetic information more cheaply, more easily all the time, that promise about what it can deliver to us here now has gone through the roof. So, mm. so first, first genome cost what three billion dollars? Yeah, nine years. Yeah, uh, three billion dollars. And now you can get one for what's the cheapest you've seen? Well, I mean, we're we're sort of ducking below a thousand dollars now, and for for a couple of hundred pounds, you can get a, a, a really good scan of your genome from these commercial companies. And it's it's an interesting time because I'm cynical about 
the use of, of that data. As being someone who has a history of working in DNA and genetics, I look at my own readout and kind of think, well, so what, right? Well, this is it. This is, this is what I... Uh, th- this is kind of what I wanted to tackle is there has been, you know, at the time of the Human Genome Project, there was this tremendous promise, right? There was, mm. you know, population genetics to, to come just around the corner at unprecedented scale. We'll just be able to crunch the numbers. We'll quickly see what, you know, where the, the various uh, locus for this disease is or this proclivity. And, and God, next, next thing, you know, we'll be yeah. able to choose, you know, all kinds of uh, traits for our children and what have you. And that has been very, very slow in coming. Not that I wanted all of it to come, but it hasn't seemed so far to deliver on this promise. Yeah, well, we turned out to be way more complex than anyone anticipated. And that, again, goes back to my sort of underlying theme that um, we are culturally programmed to misunderstand genetics. The truth is that two parents cannot predict the color of their children's eyes. Everyone knows about brown and blue eyes and having a dominant, brown being dominant over blue and so on. But actually, there's a separate gene which, in, which is responsible for green in people who have green eyes. And so far in a study last year, I think is my most up-to-date reference, there are another 13 different locuses, positions in the genome, which have a profound influence on eye color. So it's, it's much more to do then with the underlying uh, interplay between a bunch of genes rather than this is the gene for that yeah. and this is the gene for that. Exactly. There are pretty much no genes for anything. There are some characteristics which are heavily influenced by single genes, but they are... They're not, they're not few and far between, but nothing exists in isolation. And I think for a long time we were thinking that that would be the case, that we would have, you know, a gene for blue eyes or a gene for, you know, this particular disease or for wrinkly peas in, in Mendel's cases. And it just turned out that, yeah, wow, what a surprise. We're more complicated than peas, some of us, <laughs> at least. <laughs> So isn't that the promise then of these sort of 100,000 genome projects and so on, that if you gather enough of the data, then the patterns will emerge? I mean, do you hold out a lot of hope for that? Or is there more complexity you think we'll, we'll uncover and, and realize once again how, how naive we've been? I think there are deep mysteries within the genome, but I think they're scientific mysteries. I don't think there's a, any major misunderstandings at this stage. You know, ask me again in 10 years' time, of course. I, I, I really hope and would love to be wrong. That, that, you know, there's a big problem that we can't account for currently for the heritability that we see in various complex traits. It is known as the case of the missing heritability. It's just a good scientific problem. And the answer to it is going to be by looking at more genomes, by sequencing everyone's genomes and looking for the effectively infinite variation that evolution has equipped us with. Because our genomes are utterly unique. And the way that they express over a lifetime is also utterly unique. So you've got uniqueness squared in order to understand human variation. I think since the Human Genome Project, we've done pretty well, but this is a slow burn. Geneticists are not going to go out of business anytime soon. Nor, nor people who write books about them, I suppose. Well, I hope so, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be a sequel at some point. Thanks very much, Adam. No problem. If you have any thoughts on that conversation, do get in touch via Twitter. We're at Economist Radio, via email to radio at economist.com, or grab one of us by the elbow at the next Six Billion Strong Family Reunion. In London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.